Welcome to Friendship with God with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. For free resources and free messages, visit our website, friendshipwithgod.org. That's friendshipwithgod.org. Or call us for more information at 800-247-3051, 800-247-3051. Now here is our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. Say, what was Joseph's word that's being referred to there until the time that his word came? Joseph's word was the message that God had told him that his brothers and his fathers were going to bow down to him, which his family loved that word. (laughs) They were thrilled, you know. So languishing in that dirty, rotten, damp prison with his feet in iron shackles, it it just didn't look like Joseph's word of his brothers and his fathers bowing down to him was ever going to happen. I mean, he was, where was he? He was way down in some foreign place, Egypt, terrible. But during that time, the word that God had told to Joseph, it tried him. It was like a trial. He kept remembering, they're going to bow down to me. And every time he remembers, it's like a trial. And one of the trials that Joseph experienced there in that prison was the temptation to become bitter, the temptation to see that all his problems were caused by his brothers, which I could just annihilate them. The temptation was for him to blame his brothers, and they were to blame. The temptation that Isaac fell into when he blamed Jacob in verse 35 by saying, thy brother came with subtlety and take away thy blessing. When Isaac said that, Isaac was not seeing as God only as the cause for that Jacob received the blessing. When Isaac said that, Isaac saw and blamed Jacob for taking the blessing. But when the tables were turned and Joseph had the chance to make come around to them what went around, you know, to him, he proved that he had not fallen into the verse 35. And he said to his brothers in Genesis 50, verse 20, last chapter of the book, but as for you, you thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good to bring to pass as it is this day to save much people alive. That was a tremendous statement of victory for Joseph. Boy, did he have the victory there. When Joseph said that to his brothers, Joseph was really proclaiming, I got the victory over the temptation to become bitter. He had refused to see his brothers as the primary cause for him leaving his family and coming into Egypt. See, he had kept God in his sight as the primary cause for why he left his family and he came to Egypt. He saw clearly what happened. Now, he saw very clearly what his brothers thought. He said, you know, in that verse in Genesis 50, verse 20, as for you, you thought evil against me. See, Joseph didn't have a case of amnesia. You know, he didn't have a, well, you know, a long time passes and I forgot about it all. No, no. He knew how much they hated him. He remembered very clearly what Judah said happened on that day. For one thing, he overheard Judah say it again in case he forgot it. It's all reminded, came back to him. On that day, when they threw him into that pit of death, the pit to die, no water in the desert, and Judah said in front of him, although he didn't realize he could understand him, in Genesis 42, 21, and they said one to another, we are verily guilty concerning our brother that we saw the anguish of his soul when he besought us and we would not hear. Therefore, this distress come upon us. Judah said, we saw the anguish of his soul. 
See, during that struggle for life, Joseph looked into the eyes of his brothers, and he said, don't do this to me. And he was terrified and in despair. And Judah said, we saw the anguish of his soul, the eyes of the windows of the soul. They looked into his eyes, into Joseph's eyes, and they saw deep anguish of his soul. And then Judah said, when he besought us. What happened in that struggle for life? Joseph was begging for his life. He was begging for them, don't do this. And Judah said what their reply was. Judah said what their reply was to all of Joseph's pleading for his brothers to not cast him into the pit of death to die. And he said, we would not hear. And now the tables are turned, and Joseph holds in his hands now all the power over his brothers. Now you can't just say execute him. That would be it. There's no appeal court. And in Genesis 50, Joseph looks into the eyes of his brothers. He remembers so clearly The last time he looked into the eyes of his brothers on that day when they threw him into the pit of death, he remembers it. And now he looks into his brother's eyes again. He remembers how his own eyes had reflected the anguish of his soul. And he looks in his brother's eyes now, remembers his pleading cries for mercy and how they wouldn't hear, how they just turned a deaf ear to him. And as Joseph looks into their eyes and all this comes back to him, Joseph says, but as for you, you thought evil against me. But now he sees in his brothers the anguish of their souls. And now his brothers are pleading with Joseph for their mercy, for mercy for them. And in verse 18 of Genesis 50, and his brethren also went and fell down before his face. They said, behold, we be thy servants. But does Joseph take this opportunity to blame them and take vengeance on them? No, not at all. He says to them, Now therefore fear ye not, Genesis 50, verse 21. Now therefore fear ye not, I will nourish you and your little ones. And he comforted them, and he spake kindly unto them. He forgave them, and he tells them that he's going to take care of them. He's going to comfort them. He's going to speak kindly to them. Why? Because of what Joseph said to them in verse 20. But as for you, Genesis 50, verse 20. But as for you... You thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good to bring to pass as it is this day, save much people alive. See, the second but, it's all about the second but in that sentence and Joseph's thinking, it's his thinking way. It's the way he thinks. As for you, you thought, but, first but, as for you, you thought evil against me, second but, but God meant it unto good. It's all important but, but God meant it unto good to save people alive. See, Joseph did what it says in Hebrews 12, 15. Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God. He says, not me. I'm not going to fail of the grace of God. I'm looking diligently. I see that root of bitterness. I see it springing up and I'm going to spray Roundup on it. No, he won't do that. He'll get <laughs> lymphoma. Anyway, but anyway, spring out trouble, thereby many to be defiled. So Joseph looks diligently, saw that he is being threatened by this root of bitterness against his brothers before it could spring up. He stomps it on the ground, and he says, but God meant it for good. That's the end. And what Joseph did was to look for God's purpose, not just what God did, but what was God's purpose in what happened to him. And he says, he says, boy, if I hadn't come to Egypt, you know, and I came to Egypt, oh, look how many people get saved alive. It was worth it. So Joseph has shown us that the key to not become bitter 
is to look for God's purpose for what happened and then thank him, thank God for accomplishing his purpose. Steve Saint had to face the same challenge. Steve Saint was five years old when his father, Nate Saint, was one of the five brethren missionaries, including Jim Elliott, who were murdered by the Aki Indians in Ecuador in 1956. And that tribe turned to the Lord and became believers largely because of Steve's mother, who decided to pick up where her fallen husband had died and left, and she went and lived with that tribe. She's something. The tribe that murdered her husband. And there was one Aka Indian there who became very close to Steve, like a father to him. His name was Minkaya. And so decades later, Minkaya said, I got to take you today on this ride, this canoe ride. So they go on this canoe ride alone. They never found the plane. And they never found all the stuff that they had, the missionaries, the five missionaries when they died. And he told them, he said, I got to tell you something. So they go down this river, they stop along this river bank, and then Minkaya begins to dig feverishly in the sand, and he digs up the plane, or part of the plane. There was the plane. It was buried there. And then he starts digging up artifact, you know, stuff that the, the missionaries had left behind. They died. And one of the things he digs up is a picture of Steve, the little boy that his father used to keep on the plane. And it was then that Minkaya told him, he said, I have to tell you, I'm the one who speared your father. And it was so moving, and he gave him a spear. He says, now you can kill me. And so Steve broke the spear and refused to. Why? Because he focused on how many of those Aka Indians were saved from hell because his father died. And Steve could then say the words of Joseph in Genesis 50, verse 20, but as for you, Minkiah, you thought evil against my father, but God meant it unto good to bring to pass as it is this day to save much people alive. And this is what Isaac should have done. He should have said the words of Joseph, his grandson. But as for Jacob, he thought evil again. He thought evil. He thought to deceive me. But God meant for Jacob to be blessed. And that would have been looking at what happened from God's perspective and looking at from the purpose. And when we are wronged, we need the words of Joseph. But as for this person, he thought evil against me. But God meant it unto good to bring to pass as it is this day, and that's the fill in the blank. And, and that's our challenge. That's the road to victory over bitterness. That's the road to victory over not blaming others. But tragically, what we see in verse 35 is that Isaac didn't have this victory, and instead, Isaac lapsed back into not seeing God, but into only seeing Jacob, and he blames Jacob for what happened. So in verse 35, Isaac is refusing to see what God gave that God was the one who gave Jacob the birthright and the blessing. Now, after Isaac has given into the temptation to blame Jacob, we see Esau's words in verse 36. He said, well, then, is not he rightly named Jacob? He supplanted me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he hath taken away my blessing. And he said, has thou now reserved a blessing for me? So with these words, we can see how the hatred is mounting up in Esau against Jacob. Oh, it's getting hotter and hotter. And what we see in Esau is great sorrow, sorrow. He's, he's, sorry, he's got his sorrow, you know, but it's not the right kind of sorrow. In 1 Corinthians 7, 9 through 10, there's two sorrows spoken of. He says, Paul says, now I rejoice that you were made sorry, but you sorrowed, but you, you sorrowed to repentance. 
You were made sorrow after a godly manner, which you might receive damage by us in nothing. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of. But the sorrow of this world worketh death. So in these verses, Paul is saying that he was happy the Corinthian believers were made sorrow, and he talks about being sorrow after a godly manner and calls it a godly sorrow, and, and he says it works repentance, and godly sorrow always works a change. It works repentance. Godly sorrow always works a change in the person, but when a person is sorry for his sin, for example, that person will come to God for salvation. God will give that person the grace to stop. That's a godly sorrow that results in a change. It results in salvation. If a person has godly sorrow, it's going to result in repentance and coming to God for salvation. Even though Isaac lapsed backwards, Isaac affirmed his blessing on Jacob. And that was repentance. So godly sorrow had worked repentance in Isaac's part. But the sorrow that Esau had is called the sorrow of the world. That's the sorrow that's commonly found in the world. That sorrow doesn't result in repentance where people come to God for salvation. That sorrow works death. And that's what Esau's sorrow did. It worked death. Esau found a great consolation in his scheme of death in verse 41. Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing wherewith his father blessed him. Esau said in his heart, the days of mourning for my father are at hand. Then will I slay my brother Jacob. And every time he kept saying that, I'm going to slay my brother Jacob. He felt comforted. He felt consoled. And he says to us, it's all right because I'm going to kill my brother. As a matter of fact, when Isaac said that, the days of mourning of my father are at hand, Isaac's really saying, well, pretty soon we'll be over this funeral stuff, we'll be over this memorial stuff, and as soon as it happens, I'm going to kill my brother. That's what I want to do. So Esau is looking forward to the death of his father, and then he's looking forward to the death of his brother. Sorrow that works death. It's amazing to see Esau look forward to the death of his father. I mean, this shows that Esau, it shows what Esau thinks of his father. I mean, Isaac loved Esau. Isaac would never wish the death of his son, Esau. But we never read anywhere that Esau loved Isaac, his father. As a matter of fact, seeing Esau behave the way he is here, looking for the death of his father, convinces us he didn't love his father at all. And so Esau finds comfort inside himself. He begins to speak in his heart over and over again. I will kill Jacob. I will kill Jacob. I will kill him. And as Esau thinks of this, we can see how his heart just becomes a heart of death. He looks forward to the death of his father. That'll free him up so he can bring the death of his brother. Now, in verse 36, we see how Esau is thinking. Notice how Esau is focusing on the wrongs that were done to him. He hath supplanted me these two times. He took away my birthright. Behold, now he hath taken away my blessings. See, we can see from Esau's words that he's just looking at what happened from a strictly horizontal perspective. He doesn't see anything. Esau says, what's God got to do with it? God has nothing to do with it. As he says, God's hand is, 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 not, is not involved. And if we were to go to Esau and say, Esau, God just overruled you. Esau, God chose Jacob to receive the blessing. Esau would say, what are you talking about? God has nothing to do with this. He said, God has nothing to do with it at all. He has no idea. He's in the dark that God has overruled him by giving the blessing to Jacob. See, Esau here's a picture of the loss. He's a picture of the loss from Proverbs 28.5. Evil men understand not judgment, but they that seek the Lord understand all things. See, Esau has just been judged. He doesn't understand that he's been judged because of his sin. Esau here is a picture of the losses. It says in 
Proverbs 4.19, the way of the wicked is as darkness. They know not at what they stumble. The lost just go through life thinking all is going great. Then all of a sudden a tragedy happens and they say, I'm in the dark as to why this happened. I have no idea what's going on. The the ultimate picture of this darkness is seen in Job 18.18 where it said, he shall be driven from light into darkness and chased out of this world. The ultimately a death, the lost are driven from light any light they have into a state of darkness as they feel that they're being chased out of the world. And all they can say is, I don't know what's happening. I don't know what's going on here. I don't know what's happening. That's a picture we have here of Esau. He's in a state of darkness. He has no understanding as to why he didn't get the blessing. Now, he said, he took away my birthright. Is that right? Is that correct? (laughs) Is that accurate? (laughs) Is that true to the facts? (laughs) He sold it. Yeah, Jacob didn't take away his birthright. Esau consciously despised his birthright and sold it. But that was Esau's reality. I had a person say that to me one time. Confronted a person, and that person said to me, that's not my reality. Okay, this is Esau's reality. Truth for reality was that Esau despised his birthright, and Esau consciously sold his birthright for a bowl of soup. But Esau's reality, no, Jacob stole my birthright. He said he took away my birthright. It's a little convenient changing of the facts here, you know. It's a little altering of the truth. <laughs> and you notice Esau, how many times he keeps saying me and my? He hath taken away my birthright. Behold, now he hath taken my blessing, etc. See, he sees the birthright and blessing as his by right. He has no concept that he's forfeited it because he has despised God. See, all Esau could see is Esau. Esau refused to see God in what happened. He refused to see that God made the decision to choose Jacob. And now Esau asks his father, hast thou not reserved a blessing for me? He's angry with his father. He's angry with his father because he hasn't reserved a blessing for him. It's just hard to understand what Esau's thinking here. I mean, Isaac has just blessed Jacob with the blessing that Isaac had reserved for Esau. And yet Esau is now asking Isaac for the blessing that he's reserved for Esau. It doesn't make any sense. But what this shows is that Esau is just not thinking straight. He's enraged. Now Isaac shows how he knows exactly what he has done. Isaac knows what he's done. And he states the most profound part of the blessing when he says, I have made him thy Lord. He says that. And then Isaac says to Esau, first he says, I've made him my Lord. And then he says, and what shall I do now unto thee, my son? See, this shows how Isaac saw the blessing as irrevocable, that there was nothing that he could do for Esau at this point. Now, when we just look at the end of verse 36 and the end of verse 37, and just focuses on the two questions, the question of Esau and the question of Isaac, it's heart-wrenching. Because at the end of verse 36, we see Esau's question for Isaac, hast thou not reserved a blessing for me? And at the end of verse 37, we see Isaac's answer, which was a question back to Esau, and what shall I do now unto thee, my son? And now you put those two questions together, and we see a desperation here. See, in Esau's question of, hast thou not reserved a blessing for me? We see the desperation of a lost son begging his saved father to help him, help me. And in Isaac's question back, and what shall I do unto thee now, my son? We see the desperation of a safe father not able to help his lost son. 
And what we see in these two desperate questions is a scene like Isaac's in a lifeboat of God's salvation, and Isaac's son Esau is in the sea drowning in his lostness away from God. And Esau's stretching out his hand to his father Isaac, and he's desperately crying for help. He's saying, ask thou not a blessing for me, and he's stretching out his hand like that. And Isaac is desperately stretching out his hand to help his son, but the distance is too far, and all Isaac can do is in great distress watch his son drown as he cries out. He said, now what shall I do now unto thee, my son? See, this is the scene. It's desperation. It's terrible. But Esau and Isaac have come to see that there's no help for Esau. And we think of that scene. It reminds us of a similar scene in Luke 16, 19, where it says, And there was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen, which fared sumptuously every day. There was a beggar, a certain beggar named Lazarus, which was laid at his gate full of sores. And desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table, moreover the dogs came, licked his sores. Came to pass, the beggar died, was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died, was buried. And in hell, the rich man, in hell, he lift up his eyes, being in torment, seeing Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cries and says, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus that he may dip the clip of his finger in water. Cool my tongue. I'm tormented in this flame. Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things and likewise Lazarus, evil things. But now he is comforted. Thou art tormented. Beside all this, between us, And you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from thence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. See, in this scene, we see a rich man. He's like Esau, and he dies lost in his sins. And in Luke 16, 23, we read this astounding truth. In hell, he lifts up his eyes, being in torment. So what we find in this verse and the following verses is that there's four terrible truths about hell and death, death and hell. The first truth is that he wakes up. He wakes up. The greatest hope that the lost have is that they're not going to wake up after death. The greatest hope they have is that after they die, they'll never wake up. The lost cling to this hope as their hope. Such a hope. (laughs) But, you know, such a hope. When you're dead, you're dead. And there's no waking up after dead, after you're dead. And the lost make all the arrangements for their bodies to have the utmost destruction, cremation with fire so hot that the body is reduced to a pile of ashes. And the lost think that their bodies, they are their bodies. And if their bodies are reduced to cremation, to a pile of ashes, then they are no more, annihilation. But not so, says Luke 16, 23, with the words, and in hell he lift up his eyes. Not so, says Hebrews 9, 27, as it appointed unto man once to die and after this the judgment. The Bible's crystal clear that after death, the lost have an appointment for their judgment and they will make that appointment. They'll be there. And no cremation, no burial at sea, no degradation in the ground will stop every lost person from attending his own appointment for judgment. No amount of morphine before death can stop the terrifying truth that Luke 16, 23 says and in hell he lift up his eyes. There will be a lifting up of the eyes in hell for every lost person who refuses God's salvation gift, the Lord Jesus Christ. The most terrifying truth for the lost is that they will wake up after death. (music) 
another wonderful day studying the Bible with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor, here on Friendship with God. Don't forget that today's message and previous messages can be listened and downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org, friendshipwithgod.org. You can also go online to find free resources from Tom Cantor and our online bookstore at friendshipwithgod.org. You can also find Tom Cantor on Facebook, and you can also go to friendshipwithgod.org to sign up for his daily devotional verse. Now, Tom Cantor is also the founder of Israel Restoration Ministries. You can visit that website at israelrestoration.org, or you can write Tom Cantor at P.O. Box 711-330, P.O. Box 711-330, Santee, California. That's S-A-N-T-E-E, Santee, California, 92071. Or you can email Tom Cantor at Tom Cantor, that's T O M C A N T O R, Tom Cantor at friendshipwithgod.org. Tom Cantor at friendshipwithgod.org. Or for more information about Tom Cantor and Friendship with God and Israel Restoration Ministries, call us at 800 247 3051. 800 247 3051. What are you doing this Thursday? Come to the Creation and Earth History Museum in Santee, California for our Thursday night Bible study and fellowship. This Thursday, we'll have a Support Israel rally with the founder of Israel Restoration Ministries and Friendship with God Bible teacher, Tom Cantor, as he teaches us how we can bless and support Israel and reach lost Israel. So join us this Thursday at the Creation and Earth History Museum in Santee, California, this Thursday night at 6.30 p.m. Call us for more information at 619-599-1104. 619-599-1104. Or go online to creationsd.org. creationsd.org.